Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Financial Secrets Revealed. My name is Amanda Kassar and for Season 3 we are going to be meeting the experts. We will be talking to people who arrange socially conscious investments. We will be interviewing a former Olympic swimmer who is now the head of a large Australian bond company. We talk to a financial advisor to see how advisors can actually add value. We also discuss ETFs, contrarian investing. So I hope you enjoy doing this deep dive with me into meeting the experts and learning a lot more about investing. Hello, I am Amanda Kassar and welcome to Season 3 of the Financial Secrets Revealed podcast. This season, meet the experts. And when it comes to property, I believe Mr. Alex Minter of the Astute Property Network might just be an expert in this space. Welcome to the show, Alex. G'day, Amanda. How are you going? Really well. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Now, it's said in this lucky country that we live in that Mm. property is the great Australian dream, and I know that's not confined to just Australia. (laughs) Why do you think property or the bricks and mortar is really something that, you know, people to aspire to have in their portfolios? Yeah, good good question. I think it's it's a myriad of things, but I think it really probably comes down to, I think we've got deep cultural uh, roots for owning your own home in Australia. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to it provides a stability and security as well for, for your family. So, um, you know, always somewhere to live. I mean, one of the um, one of the necessities that humans need is shelter, right? So, but um, but owning your own home is, is, is the ultimate there. Um, you know, just coming back to sort of the cultural norms and, and social expectations as well. I think, um, you know, I, I see a lot of, when I say kids, um, I see a lot of sort of young adults these days coming out of uni and talking about um, buying their first home and saving for that, which which I think is great, right? But um, but I think it's almost an expectation of, of those people now, and and hopefully with the way that uh, you know the current property environment is, hopefully you know many people can still see it as a as an achievable target as well to own your own home, but. Um, you know, there's obviously the, the desire for independence as well. Um, you know, if, if you own your own home, you can paint the walls any colour you like. You can hang the pictures wherever you like it, right? Um, you know, as, as a landlord myself, um, I encourage my, my tenants to, to do that as well because it makes them feel like their own home. But um, but when it's your own home, you can do things without asking, right? Um, and then obviously, it comes down to financial benefits as well. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're able to own your own home and, and build or create equity to, to leverage at some point, um, which we'll probably you know we'll t- um, t- discuss and touch on later on in the conversation. Um, but um, you know you can invest with your own home. So there's many, many things that too, and there's also uh, it's supported by the government as well. So there's um, incentives for, for for tax benefits as well if you're trying to invest in property. But um, but it is supported by the government. So um, but but the the long and short of it, in my opinion. I think it comes down to our sort of deep um, cultural and historical roots um, around mm. uh, yeah, owning a And property. there is a security factor, I think, too, isn't there, that it's yeah. less likely that, you know, you can be kicked out or taken away and... A- absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's... I mean, I've been, I've been a, a tenant um, for, for many years before and, um, you know, although you're, 
you, you felt pretty secure. There's always in the back of your mind, oh, you know, my landlord can uh, ask me to leave. I'm a rental. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly right. I mean, there's obviously <laughs> legislation that protect tenants, but uh, but you know what I mean. It's always in the back of your mind as well. Uh, when when am I going? When's my time up here? So yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember when I was in primary school, I'm sure food, shelter, clothing were the only three things on the things we need to have. I think that list I've heard is extended to about 18 things now. Yeah. Wi-Fi apparently is one of them. Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi. Can't live without the Wi-Fi. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Facebook, yeah. whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Whole new world. So where does Australia sit in the global scale? Are we an expensive market? Is it affordable? You hear young ones now going, look, I don't think I can ever afford a property after the recent boom we've had. So where, where are we sitting? Yeah, good, good question. Um, comparatively, I mean, if you're comparing, uh, you know, the likes of Sydney and Melbourne or, or all of our capitals to um, uh, the US, right, I mean, we're, we're pretty comparable so to speak but when you start to to look at the likes of um you know london um hong kong uh, even look i guess even new york as well those really high value cities um we are we do look affordable on on that scale compared to them but i guess at the end of the day it really did, it just depends what we're sort of comparing it to i mean our regional cities are, are quite affordable compared to um, a lot of other countries, but um, yeah, but uh, on on the a global scale, um, it all depends on what you determine is affordable as well, right? I mean, there's probably other factors that come into it to like you know what what's your income, and I mean, we're out, the Australian property market is is quite affordable for for people offshore. I mean, if you look at the likes of China and and certain Asian countries, that they're trying to park their money here because they see it as a good market and affordable market as well. But be look long and short of it on 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 the scale on the global scale, you know we are affordable compared to a lot of major capitals. I suppose that's the catchphrase, isn't it? Compared to what? <laughs> are we affordable? So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 what are you what are you what are you comparing it to, right? Yeah. So Australia is a fairly young country on the global stage. I mean, we've really only got a little over two hundred years worth of history compared to you know some nations that go back for thousands of years so when I mean often we hear that you know the property market it's cyclical it runs in cycles it goes up it goes down is that true and you know how long can we base the research on when we are so young really yeah so look the the property market does run in cycles right Uh, the short answer to it is it does how these cycles are measured, I mean, it, it really depends on when you're measuring to sort of identify a cycle as well. And, uh, you know, we've done many webinars and, and education sessions on on the cycle because we we really like the fundamentals of the cycle. I mean, there's uh, many economists out there that uh, write about cycles. Um, I think you may have even heard me mention before in, in other um, conversations we've had uh, there's a, a an Australian economist by the name of Phil Anderson. He he talks about um, the cycle that's been identified over the last 200 years, right? So, and when you start to re- really look at that, you can see there's a, a trend that it has followed for 200 years, right? So, but if you start to condense that and break it down to go, okay, well, we know we're not on the 200 year cycle, so to speak. 
if you break it down, you can start to see that there's about an 18-year cycle, right? And how that cycle is compiled is there's a recovery phase, um, which lasts between six to seven years. Um, there's a mid-cycle dip or a mid-cycle correction after the recovery phase, which lasts one to two years. Then there's an explosive phase of the cycle where you know the market does extremely well in certain areas and locations, and that lasts between six to seven years. And then after that explosive phase, we see the peak, right? And then we see the trend of, of the market start to come back down, which is a, like a growth slowdown phase, and that lasts between two to three years. But when you start to condense all of that, uh, that uh, that really sort of lasts for a sort of circa 18.6-year cycle. So um, there's, um, I, I think, uh, to be honest as well, I mean, it, it really depends on, on who you ask and who you talk to as well, but a lot more economists are commenting on cycles. And, and the Australian property cycle isn't, as easy as just going to the property clock. I mean, have you heard of the property clock before? Yep. Right. There's there's people that talk about the property clock, and you can go say, okay, well, where's the city? Um, where's the city in on, on the clock at the moment? Should I be looking at that city or that location? But but those clocks, they never bring in any factors like GFCs. They they didn't have a pandemic on there. You know what I mean? So there's um you can't really go to the clock to say, okay, well, I'm going to base all my decisions on if it's a good time to buy property in certain locations on the clock. You've really got to start to go down and delve further into the actual cycle itself. So if you're looking at a cycle and it sort of goes up for a bit and then has a bit of a crash or plateaus and goes up again, does that mean, you know, you can go back to a cycle and go, right, well, this is a good time to buy? Like, I suppose when you look at a share market chart, you can see it sort of goes up for seven or eight years, comes back down, correct. Is there then... A timing factor yeah. you can play off and say, you know, timing with the share market, you know, people who, you know, try to be bottom pickers get smelly fingers. Is, is it that kind of thing with with property as well? Or can you go, right, this is where the cycle is, I'm jumping in now? Yes, similar. So so you, you can certainly identify where we sit in the cycle today, right? That That's pretty easy to do. Now, um, I, I don't encourage people to try and time the market, so to speak, particularly for a beginner investor. I mean, you've got to get in at some point. Yeah, do your due diligence and try and and work out where we are in the cycle if you really need to. But um, I can sort of uh, explain why we delve into the cycle when we're sort of identifying locations. Now, um, again, it's probably another hour conversation here, but when you start to look at the recovery phases, the explosive phases, uh, the mid-cycle dips, the downturns, uh, you can start to see, and it's very, very clear that certain cities perform differently compared to others through different phases of the cycle, right? So an example of that, um, through a recovery phase, you can always see, and it's very clear that the, the likes of Sydney and Melbourne have always taken the lion's share of capital growth through that recovery phase, right? Um, when you look at explosive phases, um, it's extremely clear that the second tier cities have uh, typically taken the lion's share for growth through the explosive phases, right? So for us as a company doing what we do, um, identifying or understanding where we're at in the cycle is crucial for us to, um, to basically say, okay, well, we should be focusing on on these areas based on historic market data. Um, again, you know, it's not speculation and, and nobody really knows the future, right? But when you go, okay, well, over the last 200 years, you can see that the cycle has run true. You're pretty confident. Um, that it's going to continue to do what it's going to do, hopefully, maybe for the next 200 as well. Does that make sense? (laughs) Long answer, but got there in the end. We often hear with property, it's, you know, all about location, location, location. So that's obviously one thing that impacts property prices. What are some other 
things that need to be considered when we're looking for property. So what, what, like what influences the market and, and pricing? Yeah, pricing. Yes. Um, there's, a, again, a, a myriad of things here, um, and, and this is where it's, you know, it's harder to time, time the market, so to speak. So um, a few factors, a big one is supply and demand, right? With anything, um, you know, the, the more supply there is, the less demand there is, so to speak. Um, but, you know, if there's more demand and less supply, that, that increases pricing, right? So that, that's a big one there. Um, obviously, a topic on everybody's lips at the moment is is interest rates. Um, that certainly influences, but that more influences sentiment as well. I mean, it, it certainly impacts and influences people's position to borrow. Um, we're certainly not denying that, but um, there's overall economic factors as well. Um, you know, what's what's the the economy doing in 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 the Australian property market? I mean, that's a that's a big big factor there. Um, Location and amenities as well, that, that impacts property pricing. Um, so depending on, on where you're looking. Um, government policies as well. So if, if government policies change, that can make the investors or particularly investors go, you know, I might sit on the bench at the moment and might wait to see what that happens. Um, you know, uh, investor activity as well. If, if investors are really starting to slow down, um, you know, you can start to see there's, the sentiment has shifted. But owner-occupier activity as well, because typically owner-occupiers, they're the, the buyers who really put that upward pressure on the property uh, market in, in certain locations. Um, and rental market as well, so um, demand for rentals. So there's there's many things that influence property pricing, but, um, but that's just a few. Yeah. So I've had clients say to me in the past, you know, when you're talking about a diversified portfolio and you mentioned shares mm. and they, you know, like never invest in shares. I know someone who lost so much in the last crash and they yeah. you know, went to cash and they never recovered. But property always goes up. So I'm going to stick with property. What do you say to people who <laughs> yeah. believe that? <laughs> yeah, look, um, if you're asking does property always increase in value, Um the, the, the short answer is you, you have to say, no, it doesn't always increase, right? But it also depends on when you're measuring it as well, right? So, um, you know, very simply, you go back to the GFC, right? So around that sort of 2008 mark, if you asked anybody property was increasing then, what do you think they would have said? Well, I, I just ran a little um, thing on mine, my investment property and yeah, I picked it up for nearly 50000 less than its GFC price when I was just looking at its history today. So I know, you know, for a fact, it doesn't always go up. Yeah, yeah. So so it, it doesn't always go up um, in, in certain times, right? But that's that's okay. As, as property investors, I think you've, you need to understand that. Um, but if you go back again to, to the GFC and, and like you, I mean, you, you bought, let's say you bought at the start of the GFC, your property would have taken a, a big dip. Okay, so would would have lost money. If you still hold that property today, you've pretty much doubled doubled uh, yeah, what absolutely. value, right? So the question is, did you prop? You know, did the property go up? It did, right? So it just depends on on, on when you measure it. But I think um, again, for investors and anybody really holding property as an asset, you, you have to. I mean, there's there's ways to make money short term through through real estate. However. General rule of thumb, you've got to think long-term here. Um, and again, if you go back to this cycle and you really start to understand the trends, you will see that property pretty much always increases, 
right? Over but, the long um, term. <laughs> over the long term. So are there some tips and traps then for people? Because obviously, you know, if someone was forced to sell when their property's gone down, that's a that's a lousy outcome. Like, you know, people who sell their shares when the market's yeah. gone down, it's not, they're not going to be winners. They're going to get that bad taste in their mouth. They're going to moan and groan for years about how they were hard done by, by, you know, being forced to sell out. So are there tips and traps for investors, even homeowners, that they can avoid being forced to sell at a bad time? What are some good ideas if you're going to be a property investor? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, look, um, just on the comment around, you know, people being forced to sell, if you're forced to sell, uh, look, it's, it's, it's okay to sell an asset, right? I mean, if they've just bought the asset and they're forced to sell, the question would be should they have bought that in the first place, right? I mean, but if they've held this property over 10, 20 years and they're forced to sell, they're probably going to make some profit in it, okay? So, look, I guess if you start to go into uh, any sort of tips here um, and even, even the traps as well, I guess the first tip is um, set clear goals for yourself, right? I mean, are you an owner-occupier? Are you an investor? You know, have a definitive objective here. Uh, And for the people who don't know how to set those goals, this is where, you know, we'd always encourage to engage professionals that can help you do that as well, okay? You know, researching the market is a big one. Many people don't know how to do it or many people think researching the market is going to realestate.com to see what that property sold for in the same street six months ago um, and trying to find comparables that way, right? That is the entry-level research, right? So there's so many other factors that you've got to consider there. You know, identify location, understanding what's happening in that location. Um, that goes with, with research as well. More tips, diversify the portfolio as well. So I guess if you are continuing to invest in in real estate, so to speak, don't put all the eggs in one basket into one particular asset type uh, in one location. You know, spread spread the risk or spread the um, the locations there. Um, even going to shares or or other sort of assets as well. And, but but a, but a big one here, I think, um, if you sort of condense all of those and put them into one, seek professional advice, right? Because there's many professionals out there that could probably guide you in a, each one of those, even if that professional can't do. Uh, all of them, there's other professionals that can help you as well, right? Um, and there's many professionals or most professionals, I should say, they've got networks of people that can help you as well. So don't don't be afraid to engage professionals for that for that guidance. Traps, right? So this probably goes back to the, the, the comment before, I mean, um, over leveraging, right? So I think you and I had a recent conversation around, you know, people borrowing, you know, I guess part of our contingency for the buyers that we work with is, is, we say don't max yourself out, right? You know what I mean? If, you, if you've got a million dollars to spend, don't go and spend a million dollars, right? Let's just try and and um, and wind that back a bit there. If you're an investor, right, this is particularly for investors, try to avoid the emotional decision-making, right? So try to really understand the numbers behind the purchase or behind the strategy. As an owner-occupier, it's hard to do that because there's a lot of emotion for that purchase, right? Um, it has to be the, the right home. It has to be the right location, right street, right aspect, right everything, right? The taps have to be the right colour. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Going through all that at the moment. Yeah, you, yourself, right? So, um, so, yeah, completely understand. <laughs> but, um, but if we're talking about investment here, try not to think like that. Try to keep that business mind about it. Um, don't uh, ignore hidden costs, right? So get a really clear understanding on, on what the costs are to hold an asset or to hold a property. 
um, you know, there's many uh, holding fees that you probably need to be aware of, right? And again, this is where professionals can sit down with you and take you through a cash flow to show you the ins and outs. Lack of due diligence as well for, for people. Um, they just jump into something that they find, that they see, that they like the color of straight away. So um, if you haven't done your due diligence on that particular uh, property or even financial product, um, you know, that's, uh, that can bring people unstuck. Um, and obviously the other one is, which we can't really sort of control really, um, is, is market volatility, right? So um, markets fluctuate. Everybody wants to buy low and sell high, so to speak, but um, and that's where it comes down to you know people trying to time the market. But um, but you've got to understand if you're buying a property, whether it's owner occupier or invested investment, the pricing is going to go up and down. I think if you understand it going into it and aim for the long term, you're going to be okay. Perfect. So there's geographic you know spreads we can do. You talked about the different sectors, so I guess there's you know everything from residential, commercial, industrial as there's so many different things to look at. So, yeah, definitely, you know, a space that most of us aren't familiar with. So the professional can help. No, that's right. So the, the other one that I probably should factor in there just for the investor here is um, you, you want the property to be managed by professionals as well. So poor, poor property management can, yeah, hinder uh, your experience. Yes, but and that's another one of those fees you're talking about holding. I suppose it's not just your rates and your water. There's right. you know there could be body corp. There could be you know ongoing leasehold fees or absolutely yes. Yeah, there there is a lot to to consider. You know you know real estate fees that you know take money out of the rent as well to manage the property for you. So yeah, very good idea to make sure you've got all that covered because you know people go oh you know your your tenants just cover that for you and you're like well not always. <laughs> so interest on the loans yeah there's, there's lots to consider. You've got the you've got the landlord that wants to save uh, twenty bucks a week to manage the property themselves, but it's a minefield. Um, you know that's that's what the, that's what a, a cost that you would absolutely well, we would absolutely recommend paying um, because they're managing your half. Well, it's an investment, absolutely, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's an investment, not yeah. a not a cost. Yeah, it's how you look at it. So. Uh, you've you've been in sort of um, relationships with property developments before and you've moved into what we call the buyer's agent space. So most people are like, you know, why would I spend money on someone trying to find a property for me? It's ridiculous. I know what I'm looking for. I can jump on and do it myself. Yeah. Why should I pay a buyer's agent? So what are the pros and cons of using a professional? Apart from oh, I'm just time poor and don't have time to look, I'll just outsource it. What, what are some other reasons for using a buyer's agent rather than DIY? Absolutely. So the buyer's agency space in Australia is still a very infant industry, right? Compared compared to the likes of the US, where everybody uses a buyer's agent, right? Uh, it's very common for the you know uh, somebody selling the property to obviously engage an agent, which is still very common here. Um, but it's very common in the US to have a buyer's agent buy the property for you as well, right? So it's an emerging it's an emerging emerging space in the end industry here, um, which is good to see. Um, a few uh, figures and, and stats here for you, which is obviously um, a reason that we made that transition, is uh, there's 140,000 registered real estate companies in this country, right? Wow. Um, now, out of, out of that, there's circa 120, well, actually 300 or so thousand real estate agents, right, who are selling properties, okay? Now, out of that, the, out of the 120,000 offices or thereabouts, there's only 3,000 buyer's agents, 
Okay, so that are representing buyers. So you can see that buyers are grossly uh, underrepresented at the moment. All right. I guess the pros and cons here uh, for this space is if you're engaging a buyer's agent, they can give you that expert guidance, right? So, um, so they understand markets, they understand how to price properties, they understand the fundamentals around uh, investing as well. I mean, there's many different buyer's agents that specialize in different things as well. Uh, so there's investment buyer's agents, there's buyer's agents that you probably want to engage for your owner occupier as well. There's commercial buyer's agents. So there's many that have their own specialties, right? A buyer's agent normally has access to listings that you, you won't find yourself on the likes of realestate.com or domain or those online platforms. Um, so they do get access to the off-market stuff prior to, to hitting market. So a lot of people see value in that as well, to, which eliminates a lot of the competition. Many buyer's agents would have exceptional negotiation skills as well. So, you know, that helps with, obviously negotiating the price of the property, the terms that you're looking for and um, negotiating the best outcome for the buyer. Networks and connections. So um, that, that comes down to obviously um, having those networks where you do get access to the stuff that the general public may not get access to. So, um, and it's obviously taking away the, the angst, uh, the time needing to, that you need to spend to go and um, to go and do this yourself as well. So a lot of people are starting to, to see value in it there. Um, obviously, if you want to put it to cons as well, um, things to consider if you're using a buyer's agent, there's a cost involved to it, right? So um, there's a fee for service here. Now, depending on um, services rendered, many different buyer's agents will have different structures. Okay, Some work on percentage of purchase price, some work on flat fee models, um, some may be a, a mixture of both, depending on what you're trying to do. But there's a fee, there's a fee for the service, right? Now, I guess if you're engaging somebody to go and do this for you, they pretty much take control of, of majority of this, right? So um, I'd want to say the buyers, although are the decision makers, they may have limited control as well because you're engaging somebody to go and do all the work you can't and probably don't know how to do it either. Right. So I don't want to say you lose control as the buyer, but you would have limited control in, in some respect there. Different buyers agents will have different, they'll have different experiences right now. As I mentioned before, this is an, an emerging industry. So there's a lot of new buyers agents coming into the market at the moment, which to be honest, I think is good because we need more representation there. With the new guys coming to market, they may have less experience than the more uh, experienced guys, right? So I think if you're engaging a buyer's agent, try and find somebody with experience and a track record, okay? Um, and it's not I'm not saying don't give the new guys a, a crack or a shot, but, you know, if you're a bit more risk adverse and, uh, you know, want more, I don't want to say, you know, to take away from the new guys, but professional guidance and experience, engage somebody who is, um, is you know, well experienced in that space there. And the other thing as well is... Um, the agent or the buyer's agent availability. So um, most buyer's agents will get to a point where they're working with a certain number of purchases or clientele and then they'll cap it for the month, right? So as a, as, you know, this is what we do. If, we, if we're working for a certain amount of buyers, we don't want to bring on too many where we can't service because we know our service will drop, right? So try and work with an agency that is that sort of mid-range ag agency. I mean, if you go with a big, big buyer's agent firm, you may be treated as a number. If you go with the small guys, they may um, provide a bit more service in that space there. So, um, but again, it all depends on what um, what you're comfortable with as, as a buyer as well. For sure. Good tips there. So 
we used to hear the words bandied out around, you know, especially pre the the global recession mm. about a property bubble. And we heard a lot about Americans being able to just, you know, throw the house keys back to the banks and, and walk away. I know we don't have those, you know, no recourse loans in Australia. So it's a bit different. But when we're talking about a property bubble, how would we know if we were in one? Yeah, so typically um, it's, it's a really good question, right? So typically the way a bubble operates or the way to sort of the telling signs of a bubble, one is rapidly increasing prices, okay? Have we seen rapidly increasing prices over the last couple of years? Yeah, we did it at one point, right? It was rapidly increasing. The other thing is speculative activity. So, you know, where it's just all speculation, you know, people just jumping in the market, paying absolutely anything for a property, trying to flip it for a profit in two months' time, right? So there's a lot more of that activity there. Easy credit availability, okay? So we saw that a couple of years ago, but the easy credit availability now is certainly not the case, right? It's really hard to get credit. Uh, and we know why it was easy to get credit a couple of years ago because the governments and the RBA, they had to pull that lever to stimulate the economy in the market, which is what it's gone and done, right? But um, we don't have easy credit availability at the moment. So that's a good thing. Overbuilding and oversupply, um, we're certainly not oversupplied, right? If you Again, if you start to look at the, fact, uh, the stats and the factors around the, the building industry, I mean, uh, I did a, a webinar with you not so long ago talking about the building industry. Um, that's still in a lot of pain, okay? So the overbuilding is not happening. Um, if anything, we need more builders and we need more things being built and we're certainly not in, don't have oversupply, right? Um, we are massively undersupplied in housing at the moment. All right, um, market sentiment and media hype. So the market sentiment at the moment has certainly changed over the last couple of years. I think a lot uh, people are a lot more cautious, cautiously optimistic, I should say. But um, the sentiment isn't off the Richter scale and off the charts, and everyone's like, "You can't lose if you buy a property." Right, so that's not there. Market volatility as well. So um, and unsustainable growth. So uh, we're not so the, the market. Yes, is always volatile, but we're not seeing unsustainable growth either, right? Um, and the big one here is, is probably a disconnect from economic fundamentals um, that, are, that I've listed. So property typically rises when the economy and income growth and all that is is great, right? Um, because people can go, go and buy property. But again, they're trying to stem that at the moment. Um, but uh, there are a few factors there that really indicate if we're in a bubble, um, and majority of those are indicating that we're not in a bubble. Good to know. Good to know. But we are in a very high inflation um, time period at the moment, and obviously we're seeing the interest rates go up and up and up, which are, are causing pain. Um, what role does inflation and the interest rates play in the property market? I'm guessing if, if there's pain, it's going to be harder. So how does that play out? It certainly makes people think. I think this is what the RBA are really doing and they've set out to do is to, to get people to think about their spending, right? Because they, they, we need inflation to come down for them to feel comfortable, right, um, which, which is fine. The only lever that we typically pull here in Australia is, is rates, right? So um, there's probably other levers that we could probably explore, but, um, but I'm not sitting in office making those decisions. And so, you're not on the board of um, the RBA. You know, <laughs> No, no, I, can't listen to you. I wouldn't want to be. <laughs> wouldn't want to be there at the moment. Imagine old Phil walking down the street, going to get some milk down the no, shops. He'd be getting the spray. Pay you, you enough. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, um, 
But look, in regards to rates, um, how does it impact markets and stuff? I guess, you know, mortgage affordability is, is, is a big one. So what we are seeing is we're seeing borrowing capacities drop significantly, right? So, you know, working with buyers, let's, let's call it two years ago who had one, $1.5, $2 million, that's now almost down to, to the million dollar or under mark, right? So, um, so that obviously then influences what they can and can't buy. Um, rates will obviously um, influence investor behavior as well because it's harder to get money. Um, it's harder to find the yields um, that are offsetting the cost to hold that asset, right? So with the environment that we're in at the moment and if you're a, a property investor, it's likely that you've got uh, out-of-pocket expenses, right? It's really, really hard and difficult to find neutrally or positively cash flowed or geared properties at the moment with the environment that we're in, right? So, but if you know that you're going into the purchase and it's going to cost you 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 weeks, 500 bucks a week, whatever it is to hold it, that's probably going to influence do you do it now or actually what am I going to go and buy, right? Um, people are refinancing their existing mortgages as well. So the, the rate changes, people have had to refinance. But um, but inflation, how that impacts the, the market is obviously um, property values, right? So um, it'll cause property to go to go up and down. I mean, it's not the only thing that causes property to go up and down, but it will certainly, um, you know, cause property to go up and down there. Um Rent increases is a big one, huge, huge thing at the moment. I guess if you look at the pros to the rent increases as a landlord, uh, yes, your rates have gone up, right, which is obviously impacting sentiment um, and impacting cost of living, but your rents have gone up as well, like significantly as well. Um, they haven't gone up enough to offset all the interest rate rises, but they have gone up enough to uh, still make the property affordable. So, um, so that's how inflation is impacting that there. Um, uh, yeah, inflation impacts financing and affordability as well, which is sort of all rolled into that. But um, but it, like rates and inflation certainly impacts the market, but it all comes down to sentiment as well. And sentiment really sort of drives people's decisions to either buy or not to buy. Perfect. Well, thanks, Alex. We've sort of covered so much, such wide roaming <laughs> topics in the property space there. <laughs> I do have one final question for you. So sure. for people who are wanting to use this opportunity now to crack into the market as a first time, whether they're an owner or an investor, do you have any final parting words or advice for people looking in that space? Yeah, so if, you, if you're looking to enter, whether owner-occupier or an investor, um, and uh, I've just got some some things written down here for uh, so just um, forgive me for for reading them out because um because I think they're good to sort of um, really touch on. So again, we, we we mentioned before is define your goals here. So get a really clear understanding around what it is that you're trying to achieve with the investment. If it's an owner occupier purchase, it's obviously to house your family or to you know buy your dream home or to buy your first property, right? Um, you need to establish a budget as well. So, um, and this is where it comes into working with mortgage brokers, working with financial professionals. Um, you know, they'll be able to establish what you can and can't spend, right? Um, and then, again, we touched on it before, maybe don't go and max yourself out, right? So keep a little bit of wiggle room in there just in case um, for, for a rainy day. Um, research the market as well, okay? So if you're confident enough to go and research the market, you know, and I suggest you don't just sit on realestate.com and think you're researching. There's many, many platforms um, that delve a lot further into data. So if you can research the market, go and research the market. If you don't know how to engage a professional to help you there, get a pre-approval as well. So many agents want to know if you've got a pre-approval, if you're going to go in and start to negotiate um, a, a price. 
So um, so go and get that sorted. Consult with professionals, as we mentioned. Um, start small. I think, you know, again, if you're just stepping into the market for the first time, it doesn't have to be the biggest property in the best location, right? So start small. It's the, it's the first step to getting in there. Consider long-term as well. Um, as mentioned, if this is an investment, try and have that sort of 10-year-plus view or plan here, right? Because we know market is volatile. It's going to go up and down in that 10 years. Right? But if you have that 10-year vision, then you're going to be okay. Conduct the due diligence on the professionals that you're working with as well is a big one. Plan for additional costs. So as mentioned before, just keep a bit of um, fat in it for a bit of wiggle room if you need to um, pay for anything else that wasn't foreseen there. And the last one I've, I've written here is, um, is is be patient and don't rush, right? So just because you, you've just been approved for a loan um, and you've just started talking about it, it may take you three months, it may take you six months, it may take you a year, but it has to be right, right? So um, so don't don't rush the process. Good tips. Thank you so much for joining me, Alex. Really appreciate your insights. No worries, Amanda. Thanks for your time. And that was another episode of Financial Secrets Revealed. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you got some nuggets of wisdom out of that guest and enjoyed listening to their story. If you'd like to know more, please reach out to me. My contact details are in the show notes or hunt down your favourite bookstore to find Financial Secrets Revealed and learn more for yourself. I look forward to hearing from you.